Morning, church. It's good to be with you today. My name is Ben Seaman. I serve on staff as our lead minister. I want to welcome everyone on campus as well as everyone watching uh, online. Today we are in week two of our fall teaching series uh, called Exodus Getting Out. Uh, We did, I forgot to mention this in the first service, we did run out of Exodus guides for week one. We have like 30 or 40 at the hub. So if you did not get an Exodus guide, we'd love for you to grab one. Our life groups are going through Exodus. If you're like, well, I didn't, you know, I didn't get in a group, that's okay. We want you to go through Exodus. You can take uh, one and go through it with your family uh, at at home. Uh, Today we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2. Because uh, it's week two of Exodus. Uh, it was a long planning meeting, right? So if you have a Bible or a smart device, go there with me uh, today. God uses the wilderness to disorient us so that he can reorient us. God uses the wilderness to disorient us so that he can reorient us. In 2013, I was a youth pastor uh, near Boulder, Colorado. We were getting ready to go to CIY Christ and Youth. They have a summer conference for a high school called Move, and it it uh, it meets uh, across uh, campuses across the country. But CIY is based in Joplin, Missouri, where I went to college. And one of our students, her name was Mia. She uh, she struggled with panic attacks, and her mom pulled me aside and said, "Hey, if my daughter has a panic attack on the trip, this is how you can help her." I said, "Great, thank you so much for letting me know that." And so we go to we go to CIY. We have an awesome week at camp. Uh, Towards the end of the week, uh, myself and some adult leaders and students were finishing up dinner, kind of playing cards, having a lot of fun, getting ready to go to the last evening's worship session. The next day, we were going to pack up super early and head back home to Boulder. And when we were sitting there eating dinner, Jenny, one of Mia's friends, came flying in from across the quad of this campus and said, Mia's Mia's having a panic attack. Mia's having uh, a panic attack. So we all got up and ran across campus to get to Mia. I don't know how or why, because some of my adult leaders have climbed 14-footers in Colorado, but I was the first one to reach her. I don't know how it happened, but it happened. And so I removed Mia from her friends. I put my arm around her shoulder, and I began to do what her mom instructed me to do. Shortly after I put my arm around her shoulder, I felt someone tapping my arm. And I turned around, and I don't remember what happened next. Later that evening, uh, after the worship service was over and after our youth group uh, debriefed, we put all of our kids in different small groups. After we talked about the day, uh, we headed back to the dorm to pack and get ready to leave. On the way to the dorm, my wife, Crystal, uh, asked me, is everything is everything okay? I'm like, yeah, I get to leave tomorrow. Everything's great. I mean, I love students. Um, everything's great. And she said, well, when uh, we all ran to Mia, uh, Jess, I think it was Jess, one of our volunteers, adult leaders, tapped you on the arm and you turned around and went poltergeist on us. I was like, what are you talking about? You turned around and started yelling like, back away. I've got this under control. I'm taking care of Mia. And I thought it was um, a group of her students trying to take care of a group of her friends trying to take care of her. But it was far worse than that. It was my wife. It was Jess, one of our adult leaders. And it was Marie, our kids pastor, who had been at the church for like a decade. So yeah, she saw Mia grow up and she was perfectly capable of taking care of Mia. And she had done it 
in the past. And I, uh, that, that's, that's a moment in a very short list of the most embarrassing moments that I ever faced in my life. And I quickly apologized to uh, Crystal and Jess and Marie. Uh, and when I got back to uh, the church the next day or Tuesdays when we had staff meeting, I asked my buddy Mitch, who was the family pastor, he's my boss, hey, who was that, um, <clears throat> who was that lady that you talked to uh, when you were growing up and helping you deal with your dad's alcoholism, because he his dad drank so much they kept getting evicted, and his mom would say we're going to camp in the in Estes Park in the Rocky Mountains as a vacation, but really they just didn't have a place to live, and he said, um, oh it's it's so and so, so I I called her up and I found myself in this little counselor's office on the foothills of the Rocky Mountains in Boulder, Colorado, and that was the beginning of my disorientation in the wilderness. God will use a wilderness experience to disorient you so that he can reorient you for his purposes, but it's not going to be fun, and you're not going to like it. But you, I promise, will come out healthier on the other end. The reason why a lot of folks don't do this is because of the simple fact that heart work is really really hard work. And we do everything we can to fight against it. Listen to what Parker Palmer wrote. He says, everything in us, uh, everything in us cries out against it. This is why we externalize everything. It's far easier to deal with the exterior world. It's far easier to spend your life, wow, manipulating an institution than dealing with your own soul. We make institutions sound complicated and hard and rigorous, but they are simplicity itself compared with our inner labyrinth. And you might be saying, like, man, Ben, like, that's, that, you had a wicked story, but I don't know that I've had a story like that. The problem is that it's so subtle. Uh, and our underdevelopment, our lack of self-awareness, living out of our false self or our shadow side can be so subtle that we can miss it. And honestly, because we don't really, as a, I, I don't, I'll make a blanket statement. You can tell me if it's true or not after service. We don't like conflict, and we tend to be more passive aggressive. And so at the holiday parties this year, someone's going to say, well, that's Uncle Henry. He's just that way. Well, not if the Bible's true, because if Uncle Henry's a Christian, he needs to be bearing the fruits of the Spirit. And being a jerk is not one of them, Right? Right? But we're so like, well, that's so-and-so, and we excuse their behavior. It's not right for me to look around and scream at my wife, adult leader, and our kids pastor. Right? No one's going to say, well, that's just Ben. No, that's underdeveloped Ben for the first time, seeing what he thought he could hide boil over in front of the presence of everybody else. Here's how it looks in your life. Maybe you can identify with one of these. It happens when we choose fear over trust. It happens when we choose protectiveness over the fear of disclosing what's going on in our lives. It happens when we choose possessiveness over letting go. It happens when we choose manipulation, when we try to manipulate ourselves, our loved ones, God, and even our own agenda. It happens when we choose destructiveness, and by that we use people. People are a means to an end. We'll be nice to them until we've used them up and then we move on. And it happens when we choose indulgence, even when we indulge ourselves in the church, right? What's wrong with that? Well, there's a lot wrong with that, church, because Christians have the tendency, you ready for this, to use God to run from God. What are you talking about? 
I give 90%. No, you don't. I give 90%, right? I serve. Uh, I, I pray. Uh, I, I'm in a Bible study. I'm in a life group. I just served at the Salem Scramble. Yeah, it's easy to be involved with exterior things so nobody has to ask you what's going on internally. We use God to hide from God. And when things like, uh, like, like when my parents split up or something happens in a family unit within a church, uh, when, I'll just use my, my family. When my parents split, everybody, so this is back in the 90s, small groups weren't a thing. Everybody in their Sunday school class, they were like, not Debbie and Mike. And I'm like, how in the world were you guys part of this stinking Sunday school thing and nobody knew what was going on? Because we use God to run from God. Moses, in chapter 2, is about to have his disorientation process happen right before our eyes. So let's go to Exodus 2. I'll begin in verse 2. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw <clears throat> excuse me, that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Imagine that, mom's hiding your child for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with a tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the banks of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter, is not a good sign, went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This, this is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Now listen, ladies, this is what happens. Again, yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. Like Moses' mom, like, that's my kid. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to, Moses' mom took her baby back to Pharaoh. Back to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. It's, I think we can all agree somewhat, 80% of us agree that Moses um, had a pretty tumultuous upbringing. Uh, Moses was born in a culture of violence. And if you remember from Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh sort of dropped the hammer, dropped the edict that if midwives are helping with uh, deliveries and a Hebrew woman gives birth to a Hebrew male, he's to be killed uh, right on the spot. And the Hebrew midwives are like, no, we're not going to do this. We don't care what you say. And remember, the reason why they're doing this, because of, here's, here's Pharaoh's shadow side, because of his um, insignificance and feeling like if enough if enough Hebrew babies are born, they're going to grow up, join the uh, Hebrew army, and make allies with other countries, and then they will overtake Egypt, and my rule and reign will be no more. How insecure can you be uh, by the threat of a child? And Moses, like all of us, developed coping mechanisms. He was abandoned 
right at birth. Now, let, let's be fair to the text. His mom was probably trying to do the best that she could, right, ladies? Let's give her the benefit of the doubt. But she left him in hopes that somebody would pick him up and take care of him. Then the worst possible scenario happened. The enemy, the enemy found baby Moses, Pharaoh's daughter, the last person a Hebrew woman would want their child to be with. And the Hebrew woman says, or the uh, Pharaoh's daughter says, go find this kid's mom. And then when she comes to me, I'm going to let her serve as a wet nurse. I'm going to pay her to feed her own child. Wait for it. It gets worse. Then when Moses is old enough and can eat adult food, I will take her away from her again, not one time, but two times, and he will be an Egyptian. Moses had a lot of anger issues. And you kind of go, yeah, I don't blame him. But anger, anger is a secondary um, emotion, a secondary notion to something deeper, something lower in our iceberg that we're hiding from everybody. It was his identity, right? He was born a Hebrew, but raised an Egyptian. Now, there's some benefits. Let's, let's, let's not lie. There's some benefits to being Egyptian. A, you're rich. Uh, B, you get a world-class education. Sure, you might, he might have had the fake of worshiping Egyptian false gods, but he had a pretty posh life. Until one day, what he kept hidden down finally boiled over, and Moses couldn't take it, take it anymore. Verse 11, the text reads, One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. Moses was not allowed to identify with the Israelites. He had to keep his distance. His own people. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one, because that's how you cross the road, kids. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting and asked the one who is in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you the ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. But I looked both ways. I didn't see anybody. So surely I thought if I murdered this guy, nobody would notice. And sure, my Israelite buddies, my Hebrew buddies, they're not going to say anything. Your shadow side will play you for a fool. And unhealthy people can see it from a mile away. Or healthy people can see it from a mile away. And if the healthy people in your life are kind enough to you, they will have that conversation with you. Moses, in verse 15, had an ultimatum. Verse 15 says, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to Midian, where he sat down by a well. Moses again, although when you're a baby, you can't make your own decisions for yourself, uh, but Moses again had to decide, do I stick around in Egypt and risk execution, uh, or do I run? And he chose to run. He ran for his life, and he went to Midian, and the text says he sat down by a well. Who cares? You do. Here's why. This is the first time in Exodus where Moses allowed himself to catch his breath. This is the first time that Moses sat down long enough to be with the Lord. 
His, his, his childhood had caught up to him. His anger issues had caught up to him. His identity crisis had caught up to him. And it boiled over and he murdered an Egyptian male. And he had to run for it. He was afraid for his own life. And this is the beginning of the disorientation and the reorientation of Moses' life. God does not want Moses to lead the people uh, of Israel out of Egypt until Moses is healthy. Let me tell you something, church. With social media, it's really bad to tell the pastor, you're an amazing preacher. Let's share all of your quotes online and this and that and all that. Like, it's, not, it's not bad, but it can get to somebody's head. God doesn't want pastors to be successful. <laughs> he kind of already accomplished that on the cross. He does want us to be fruitful. He does want us to be faithful. And he does want us to be healthy. And he does want his churches to be healthy as well. Listen what happened to Moses and Midian. I'll back up in verse 15. When Pharaoh heard this, he tried to kill Moses. Moses fled from Pharaoh, and he went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water uh, their fa father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses, there he is again, the hero of the story, Moses got up and came to their rescue, probably tapping into his anger yet again, right? And watered their flock. When the girls returned to uh, rule their father... He asked them, why, why have you returned so early today? Well, they answered, an Egyptian. An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Rule asked his daughter. Well, why did you leave him? Invite the guy over for some dinner, man. Verse 21, at least feed the guy if he saved you. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. And Zipporah gave birth to a son. And Moses, this is so critical to Moses' growth. Moses named, his, Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. When Moses names his son, and he says, I'm naming him because I feel like a foreigner in a foreign land, he finally comes to terms with his identity. He finally sits long enough to let the Lord sift through what has been going on in his life. Ruth Haley Barton is one of my favorite uh, authors. She writes this about solitude. One of the primary functions of solitude, I love this phrase, is to settle into ourselves in God's presence. It's kind of hard to take a deep breath and settle into yourself when you're dealing with anger when you're dealing with disappointment, when you're dealing with identity issues, and you think you have to figure it all out. And this is the first time Moses sits down long enough to allow the Lord to begin to do the slow work of soul work and the hard work of heart work. In solitude, I'll just, I'll just call the American church out. Like, I don't have my iPhone here, but you get the point. Like, we don't sit still. 
We don't, like, having nothing to do on our calendar is boring to us. <laughs> Maybe. Some of you with kids are like, eh, I think I'd like that. What happens in the middle of silence? I'll tell you. Silence addresses one of the idols in the American church, which is control. Anything can happen when you're silent long enough. When we sit in silence, the voices in our head come rushing over us. We begin thinking of anything, the car that just drove by our house, the fan that's going on in our home office where we're having our quiet time with the Lord. Silence can be a scary place. Solitude can be a scary place, but it is the place more times than not when the reorientation of our wilderness experience begins to happen. Church, let me encourage you with something. If you feel like you are in a wilderness experience, okay, Jesus has not left you. You're the pastor, Ben. You get paid to say that. True, but it's also theologically correct. Let me show you why. At the end of Exodus chapter 2, we hear this. So if, um, if, uh, if, if a movie director uh, was uh, shooting this scene in Midian, they would cut away from Moses, right? And they would go back to Egypt where you see this tension that has not resolved. Uh, yes, great. Pharaoh died, but guess what? Another one came to power, right? And <clears throat> the Israelites are still groaning, still want to be rescued. They still want to be redeemed. And there's sort of this like <clears throat> throwaway line at the end of chapter two, where God says he heard their cry and he remembers his covenant. Now, why does that matter? It's a pretty big deal. A covenant is sort of like marriage vows, right? That, uh, that a husband and a wife say to each other, they're committing. Uh, I, I always say this in a wedding, uh, a, a marriage vow is a promise of who you're going to be for your spouse in the future, all right? No matter what happens in the future, I promise to be this kind of person uh, for you in the future. And there's about five different um, uh, covenants in the scriptures. It begins with a couple, a family, it goes to a nation through King David. And the final and lasting covenant is with Jesus. And it's for everybody. You don't have to be a Hebrew boy. You could be a Hebrew girl. You could be an Egyptian girl. It doesn't matter what color you are, where you're from, or how you vote. The gospel is for everybody. And this is sort of, to use a music term, an overture of what is about to happen in Moses' life, but he has to get healthy first. The word uh, for basket in Hebrew is the same word used of the ark that Noah built. Now, why does that matter? Maybe not a lot, but I think it's significant. It matters because what God is showing us and what God is showing Moses, whether he's realized it or not, is that God is going to be a God of deliverance. And Moses decides, now we have to get through chapter three, so uh, Andrew, our family minister, is going to talk about Moses' encounter with Jesus through the burning bush. It's a wicked cool story. Uh, but Moses decides he's going to go back to Egypt and he's going to identify himself, right, with the Israelites. Now, anybody, and it's not an easy task, anybody could lead a group of oppressed people from uh, an aggressive dictator. It's not an easy task, so maybe I shouldn't say anybody. 
But what Moses can't do is free the Israelites of their bondage in sin and the oppression and the affliction that sin has on us in our bodies. Number one, AKA busyness. Jesus is the greater Moses. So why does, why does uh, Exodus 2 want us to know that the Hebrew word for basket is the same Hebrew word for ark? I'll tell you why. Anybody, except for me, I have preacher hands. Anybody, especially Steve uh, Lacasse, can build a boat and put a bunch of people in it and stanky animals in it. Anybody can save a group of people because a flood's coming. But what Noah cannot do is save humanity from the wrath of God. But Jesus can. And on the cross, Jesus is showing us that he's a greater Moses and a greater Noah by not just only suffering for the penalty of our sin, but for the power that sin has over us. And he's also showing, in light of the narrative with Noah and the flooding of the world, that only Jesus can fully take the wrath of God upon himself to forgive the sins of the world. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater Noah. Look at Hebrews 11, 24 through 29. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as a son of the Pharaoh's daughter. He had a posh life, but look at verse 25. He chose to be mistreated, right? We, we spent our whole lives of trying to be comfortable, but Moses, who lived in luxury, chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. He knew his purpose. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He, preserved, he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. That's a reference to next week when Moses talks to Jesus, which is a really cool story. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people that passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Moses chose to identify himself with the people of Israel. He chose to identify himself with the people of Israel, leaving a very posh, successful, sort of comfortable lifestyle. In the same way, Jesus, who left heaven, who is a foreigner in a foreign land, chose, he, listen to her, he, he chose to give his life up. Students, you probably don't choose to take out the trash. You probably grumble, like I, I still do and I'm almost 40. I definitely did when I was a teenager, right? But Hebrew says, it was the joy before him he endured the cross. That's something I would not use to describe a crucifixion, especially if I was the guy to go up on the cross. But it was his joy. He was willing to give up his life 
to die for your sin. Actually, in John 10, 18, Jesus talks about uh, this idea of like who's actually, who has the authority to give up Jesus's life. And when you hear the word it, it's in reference to his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down uh, on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Because when you're God, you don't have an opinion. You have authority over like everything. Jesus was willing He was willing to go to the cross for you, and he was willing to identify, right? This is what makes Christianity so mind-blowing, that the God of the universe was willing to identify himself with you, shoulder to shoulder. You can touch Jesus. You can read about Jesus in non-Christian historical documents so that you can be saved from your sin. This is why the this is why the Levitical and all the animal sacrifices that you know your moms don't let you read in middle school would never work out. Because an animal is not equal to a human, and you must become what you want to save. And so God becomes one of us in the flesh. Actually, he Jesus does this so well, he gets made fun of. Luke 7:34, the son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Not only is Jesus willing to die for your sin and whatever it is that brought you to your wilderness experience, but he wants to identify with you. That's a level of empathy and sympathy that I don't know that any other religion teaches this side of heaven. God will use a wilderness experience to disorient you so that he can reorient you for his purposes. Maybe it's a week later, maybe it's a month, maybe it's a year out. I'm so grateful that the Lord did that in my life. And that began in a counselor's office in Boulder, Colorado with the coolest lady that I've ever met in my life. She was in her mid to late 60s, strong Christian woman, and she helped me unpack what in the world led up to the poltergeist moment when I turned my head and flipped out on everybody. And it's been a long, hard road. I'm not fully healthy. I've still got room to grow in like we all do. But let me tell you something, church. If you find yourself in a wilderness experience, God has not abandoned you. You'll actually find God with the hurting and with the broken and with the sinful. And if you find yourself in those categories, Jesus is right there because he wants to identify himself with you. He's going to become what he wants to save And so, church, may you, as hard of a text as Exodus may be to read and apply to our lives, may you find Jesus close to you if you find yourself in a wilderness experience. He has not given up on you. There's a greater purpose. Though you may not know the why as to why it's happening, you do have the how far answer. Jesus was willing to go to the cross to suffer for your sins in your place, and he's right next to you, wanting to grow you, wanting to develop you, would you please let him? Because he has things for you in the future that you cannot wrap your mind around. There's no way in the next chapter, there's no way Moses would have thought God would use him to lead the people out of Egypt. And you know what? He did. Because God wanted Moses to first be healthy before he stepped into, listen to this, ministry. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks so much for this 
beautiful reminder that you've not given up on us, that often in pain and suffering, one of the first questions we ask is why, uh, possibly followed up with where, uh, and we don't always know why, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I don't have all the answers, but the, the where is obviously answered in your scriptures, you're right there with us. You are, as the psalmist says, you are close to the brokenhearted. Because I think in our pain and in our wilderness, as stubborn as we are, Jesus, you have those moments for us because that is finally, like Moses, when we're willing to sit down long enough by a well and catch our breath. Jesus, would you remind us today that you're after healthy people that bear the fruits of the Spirit. Thank you that you've not given up on us and you are right by our side and you use the wilderness to disorient us, to to reorient us to your purposes. It's in your name that we pray, amen.